it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Wednesday, April 17th on Programming Essential Life Skills for Adolescents and Adults. Just recently, we held a CEU webinar about Programming for Progress, which was geared towards younger learners. But what about our older learners? How can we ensure that we have programs in place to best suit their needs? Join me live on Wednesday, April 17th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as I discuss how to program for life skills for adolescents and adults. This CEU is presented by me, Shana Gaunt. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board-certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. Today, we are welcoming Ashley Cabral, who is a BCBA who practices in an in-home agency. She's from Massachusetts, and she is coming to discuss with us the topic of diversity, cultural competence in the field. And I think as BCBAs and AB professionals, we definitely don't have enough training on this. The fact that it was just recently added to our uh, task list just says that it's something we really need to do better on. So I'm really looking forward to having the conversation. So welcome. Welcome, Ashley. Welcome, Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into the field and what your role is? Sure. Um, so as you said, I am a BCBA for an in-home agency in um, Southeast Massachusetts. Um, I've lived here all my life. I'm originally from Massachusetts as well. Um, and so I started off at an in-home agency in the early intervention department. So I worked primarily from newborn to three. Um, the primary city that I was servicing in our kind of catchment service area were primarily uh, low-income families, um, as well as families that are the majority Portuguese-speaking. Um, so we've had families from Cape Verde, Brazil, Portugal, um, and various other countries, but those were primarily the ones that I have or started working with. Um, I am bilingual. I grew up in a Portuguese-speaking home, um, and so I'm fortunate enough to still be bilingual and still have that um, ability to communicate in Portuguese fluently. Um, and so when I started early intervention as a developmental specialist, I primarily worked with a lot of families that were Portuguese speaking. Um, I then started to, over time, get experience with working with families that had children of um, with developmental disabilities, but primarily ones that showed significant symptoms or um, red flags of an autism diagnosis. Um, and so that started my journey into autism and learning more about ABA therapy. Um, I worked in conjunction with other ABA providers at the time because our agency did not have an ABA program. Um, and then from there, I learned what a BCBA does, and I learned about the science of ABA, and from there made the decision to pursue, uh, you know, my graduate program and become a BCBA myself. 
Um, and thankfully, at the time, we were also launching our, our ABA program at the company that I was in. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to have started or at least have helped start, um, you know, opening up those cases in our new ABA program. So that's where I've been. I've been with the company now for about almost seven years. And our ABA department has been around since 2016. Um, so I primarily have now worked in our ABA program as a BCBA, but primarily also um, working with Portuguese speaking communities. Wow. And I imagine as a family who um, lives in a country where they don't speak the, you know, the main language, it's probably very comforting for them to have someone who's fluent in their language because developmental disability, autism, those are overwhelming enough. And I imagine having the language barrier just makes it that much more overwhelming. What do you see as like the biggest obstacle, um, you know, facing us as ABA professionals dealing with families who may not speak the same language as us? Like what, what really is, is getting in the way there of us um, connecting and bridging that gap? I think the biggest gap, um, and again, I can only speak on behalf of the Portuguese speaking community, but I'm pretty sure that this is a common thread with a lot of families who do not speak English or are not originally from um, from the States, um, is, is information. Um, it, it really is information. The majority of information that is given to parents that go through the process of getting a diagnosis is primarily in English. Um, so I... I, I encourage other BCBAs and other uh, practitioners and behavior technicians in the field to really kind of put yourselves in their shoes. You know, imagine, you know, having a child with significant um, developmental delays and, and concerns for a potential autism diagnosis and you get them, you know, evaluated and diagnosed in a totally different country. You don't speak their language. You're, you're at a table with a bunch of uh, doctors and professionals giving the diagnosis that also don't speak <laughs> your language. Um, at times, translators are available. At times, they're not. Um, and even just the written information, I think that's also another barrier is written information is all primarily in English. So a lot of the time that I spend is simply just translating um, the developmental report and the letter and what it means um, and dissecting that information and really making sure that I'm translating it in a way where, you know, our, our families can understand and really kind of work through that information. So I think the biggest barrier is just information that is in their native language. I think, you know, that's definitely an area that continuously, I feel is, is a barrier for the majority of the families I work with. And if you, you know, if you didn't speak Portuguese, or if there was a community that didn't have each other to, to turn to, or people who were English speaking to translate that, what would your suggestion to other professionals be? So for instance, me, I only speak English, I don't have another language. If I'm trying to service somebody whose primary language is not English, what can I do better as a professional? Um, I think the first step is really learning more about the culture. I think that's the that's always the first step is is kind of understanding the culture of you know of of the country of the family that you're working with. I think that's always a a beginner step is to be more mindful of you know what are cultural norms for them and and what are not. Um, but 
also kind of just encouraging them to seek out, um, you know, support groups or even just, you know, uh, different informational sources that um, are in their native language. So I can give an example. Autism Speaks has was my first kind of um, beginning organization that I leaned on a lot. Um, Autism Speaks, their their website really has like the 100 day first, the first 100 days of, of uh, the autism diagnosis. And it's translated in well over 25 different languages, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, so I think what I would suggest is knowing what is credible as a BCBA. So what is information that you would naturally give credible information to a English speaking family and looking to see how that can be disseminated and translated in that you know, family's language. So I I always started with Autism Speaks and I and I looked at, you know, what are some of the brochures and um, uh, information that I have read in English that I know is credible to then have it, um, you know, downloaded in a language that, um, you know, is, is obviously the language that uh, the family speaks. So I think that's always a good beginner step. Um, and then, you know, looking to see what further information needs to be, um, you know, looked at or or gathered from there. I think it's really important as practitioners to remember that different cultures approach autism, developmental disability very differently. Um, you know, you mentioned working with people where autism is is more of a taboo and it's not something that they really even want to discuss or want to approach. Um, how can we as practitioners I mean, on the one hand, be sensitive to that because it is a cultural difference. But on the other hand, you know, we want to help and we want to make change and we want to improve lives. So what's your suggestion there? I think the biggest thing that I was told once before by um, a BCBA that helped me kind of really have the perspective to break down the diagnosis is that autism is not um, a... Uh, it's, it's, of course, can be altering to someone's life. Of course, you know, the diagnosis obviously presents with difficulties, but it's not a death sentence, right? It's just a different way of learning. It's a different way of absorbing information. Um, and the way that I like to present it to families that are just kind of starting this journey is that, you know, your child learns just in a different manner, in a different way, and they process information in a different way. Um, and so, I primarily start by really breaking down what the diagnosis is. Um, I know in a lot of Portuguese speaking countries, the feedback that I've been given by families um, that immigrated from there have mentioned that, you know, to them, autism, like you said, is very much a taboo. It's very much a, um, uh, you know, it, it can also sometimes be seen as almost like a, um, like a curse or, um, you know, a bad omen. Um, and so a lot of that has to be kind of uh, disseminated and kind of digested through. Um, but again, a lot of it is just teaching them that the diagnosis comes in so many different ways and shapes and levels and severities and and just kind of working from there. And, and again, we have to be mindful as practitioners that these families are coming from countries that don't have ABA services. Um, and if they do, it's hours away at a local hospital or clinic. Um, we also have to be mindful that these families are, are primarily, you know, have been exposed to maybe other medical conditions in childhood that they believed, oh, well, that's just what they have, right? It, it's, it's something medical, it's something physical. Um, so we, I think the biggest thing there is just to be sensitive to what 
you know, medical experiences in countries that they've lived in have been and, and kind of just being more compassionate with that first. Yeah, that's so important. I, I always remember one of my first clients who um, were not native to, we're in Canada, we're not native to Canada. And, you know, me as the ABA professional wanted to teach, you know, eating and sitting at a chair and eating with utensils and all of that. And it was this family's culture to sit on the floor and feed with their hands. Um, and we kind of have to, you know, it was a bit shocking because as a young professional, I was like, well, that's, you know, they're, they're here, like they're in Canada. They need to learn how to use a fork. Uh, but you know what? Maybe they didn't. And I think having that um, cultural sensitivity is really important, especially when we're going into people's homes. We're in their space. Um, they don't have to do things our way. They Just because this is how we are familiar with things doesn't mean that's how we have to teach our clients to do things. And I think it's really important that we remember that going into our clients' homes and spaces. Yes, Absolutely. Such a good point, though, Shira. And, you know, Ashley, you said at the beginning when you were talking that one of the things that we should be doing better is just right from the get-go, understanding other people's cultures and starting there. So it's not just about the language and the translation issue, but it's the cultural um, cultural nuances as well. So if we can, you know, just dive in a little bit and say, oh, in this culture, you know, they see it as this, or in this culture, this happens. Um, what's your experience with or being able to say, I don't know about that or not, not, I don't know about that, but I don't know about your culture or can, can you tell me more? Are parents open to you? I mean, when you're going into the Portuguese culture, they welcome you because you're Portuguese. But if you had to go into, you know, another language, um, speaking family and say to them, listen, can you tell me more about your culture? I'm really interested so that I can learn more and help you out that way. Is that a good thing to do a bad thing to do? What's your experience with that? I think it's a great thing to do. Um, you know, again, coming from working with so many families that um, are Portuguese speaking, one of the like the biggest comments or feedback they've given me is like, wow, she actually took her shoes off at the door. You know, she actually wanted to know more about my culture. She actually wanted to know more about, you know, our, our upcoming religious holiday that's coming up. You know, parents really enjoy when we take the time to just be humans <laughs> and really just understand someone's culture. I mean, I have the experience, thankfully, working in a bro uh, in a city that is so broadly um you know, so culturally diverse that I have worked with families from, you know, um, Arabic speaking, um, you know, you know, countries and, and, and areas of, of the world. And, um, you know, I had a family that, uh, was Arabic speaking. And of course, you know, I don't speak Arabic, um, but I was able to, understand what was important to them. And it was the little things like taking shoes off at the door, um, sitting on the floor, just watching, you know, their interaction. Um, and over time, you know, I, I got to learn so much about the culture being in their home. I think that's also the other great thing about working in homes is you can really see, you know, culture there that it's such a cultural uh, rich environment to be in um, and so I I just encourage practitioners to really absorb that you know do they have a dining room table or do they have an area where they sit on the floor to eat you know do they do they have you know utensils or, or or things like that you know what is their customs and what are their traditions and what is important to them so that way we can help navigate that relationship and, and really build that rapport with the family. 
Yeah, I think it's so important now for those of us who are supervising, you know, new BCBAs in the field, um, where this is a new concept. And so much of our training and of what the focus is when you're learning to become a BCBA is on like the 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 theoretical and like the textbook stuff. And they have to learn how to attack and mand and and do all those things. And I wonder what we could do better as supervisors in the field to better train um our own supervisees to be more sensitive to this. And I guess it depends on where you work because those of us who work in a clinic or who work a little bit more remote from families are a little bit more far removed versus those of us who work in home. Um, is there something that us as supervisors could be more aware of, whether it's, you know, pointing people into the right, the right direction for resources in their language, or whether it's noticing those things in the home, like, can we better prepare our next generation to be better at this? Yeah, I think definitely for sure the access to information is always kind of the 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 top, you know, um starting point for sure. But I I do always encourage my behavior technicians to really make sure to have, you know, the parent present or the parent nearby when they're doing, you know, programs and 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 you know, let's say they're doing a matching program, you know, if if the parent can just simply even watch you know, watch the program be run or watch to see and observe, you know, what are the specific ways or strategies that we're really using to teach their child a specific skill. Um, you know, surprisingly enough, I've had parents tell me like, oh, I did that thing that, you know, the therapist does with those cards and he did it, you know, so they they really do feel very empowered when they can even just watch, right? So there's no communication there, you know, there's no translation there. It's just simply observing a, a program be run or a skill be uh, be taught that parents surprisingly enough absorb that and they practice outside a session without sometimes us even knowing until I have like parent training with them and they're like, oh, I, I tried these these cards and I, and I tried that Velcro thing that you guys use and it worked awesome. So I just encourage that, you know, even just involvement, physical involvement of parents just simply watching and, and being engaged in session, I think really goes a long way and it doesn't necessarily necessarily need, you don't need a translator for that. You don't need a trans, you know, someone to translate, you know, what the SD is and, and what the target you're working on. Right. So um, I really do encourage a lot of, of practitioners, but also just behavior technicians as well, just to be mindful of that. Parents really absorb a lot of information that way too. Wonderful. What advice would you have for a newly minted BCBA? I, I think as a newly minted BCBA, what's important is, you know, like uh, like what we've discussed before, we learn all this terminology. We learn all of these textbook kind of, you know, protocols and, and things to try. I, I just really encourage, you know, newly minted BCBAs to really have that compassion first, you know. Um, I, I know that at times we're so eager to try, you know, this treatment and this treatment and have all this terminology and, and, and this jargon, right? But I, I really do think it's important just to take a step back, get to know the family first, get to know, you know, what their concerns and priorities and their needs are, and really be more um, compassionate, you know, with, with what they're 
you know, struggling with, you know, we, like I mentioned before, we, we have a lot of families that are of low income families. So do they have every toy that we would love to have to work on with their, you know, their child on a particular skill? Of course not, but we're, we're not going to come from a place of judgment. So I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is just to be compassionate and meet the family where they're at, right? So if you, if you, this is your first time meeting your, your new case or your new family, just meet them where they're at, you know, where are they at? Do they, uh, need more time to process what diagnosis was just given or do they um, have more of an approach where they're you know accepting of the diagnosis and they're ready to kind of jump into programs and teaching so I think uh, you know just making sure to, to have that compassion first but also meeting where the families um, are at and not just jumping into programs and parent training and teaching um, because just as we stress the importance of rapport with our with our learners, I think that rapport is equally as important with our parents as well. Absolutely. We're not just pairing ourselves with reinforcement with the student. We're pairing ourselves with reinforcement with the entire family. Um, you're right, because if we want generalization, if we want the ultimate goal to be parents learning this and parents taking over, then we really need that buy-in. Yeah, Absolutely. It's really important to know, like you said, where they're coming from and meet them where they're at. Um, I work with a lot of families who similarly a diagnosis is is taboo. Like they don't want anyone to know. And I need to be very aware of that, especially because I may see them, you know, out and about in the community. And certain families don't want me to acknowledge them. And I need to be okay with that. And then there are other families who if I didn't acknowledge them, they would be insulted. Um, and there's so much sensitivity there because we have to be so aware of where our families are coming from and the backgrounds that they have and how their feelings are about that. And I love what you said about not looking at it as like this diagnosis as, you know, this is, you know, this whole big, you know, challenge, but let's talk about like how, what does it look like on the day to day? Like, forget about the diagnosis, whether or not you have a diagnosis or not, um, what's working for you, what's not working for you. And let's start small, like don't get overwhelmed by the fact that your child may or may not have a diagnosis, but you know, how can I help based on, you know, where you're coming from and what your culture looks like and what you're sensitive about um, and really meet them where they're at. I love that. Yeah. We also mentioned about, uh, you know, the whole cultural diversity, you know, becoming, you know, this, this newer topic in the field that we're talking about, and it shouldn't be new. It's, it's been there all along, but we're just starting to talk about it. Um, likewise with compassionate care, you know, compassionate care, we're really just starting to talk about as professionals. And that's something that should be in the forefront and should have been in the forefront for ages and ages and ages and ages. So I love how you highlighted that as well, that, you know, it's about, you know, not just pairing yourself with families, but also the compassion and showing them or, empathizing with them. I understand why you're here or what this journey, or maybe I don't understand, but I'm not going to judge you for it. Um, and if this is where you're at, I can help you with this journey versus judging you for it or saying, no, 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 you need to be here. Yes, exactly. And to give, you know, different examples, you know, I, I have gone into families or, or new cases that are coming from another ABA provider and that have chosen to switch ABA providers. And one of the biggest things is, you know, because that, um, that language barrier is there, um, that that compassionate care can almost sometimes be tricky to, to, to do in a way because you can't really connect in a, in the link, the same language sense. Right. Um, but I think that's where the training starts, right? Like without us knowing their native language, how can we build those rapports? How can we have an open mind? How can we have more of a, 
presence, a welcoming presence, not a closed off presence where we're just kind of on our on our computers and looking at graphs, right? How do we spend that time to really get to know the families and connect with them in a way where um, they are trusting of us and that they are, um, you know, feeling that we are there not just to support their child, but also to support them and, and their concerns and, you know, what what they are going through as a family possibly even just getting the diagnosis recently, you know? So I think a lot of that is where, you know, I hope the field really kind of dives into a little bit more is, is how we can better strengthen that as a part of our field. I'm listening to you and I'm nodding as if people can really, <laughs> really see me on this podcast. Right. Um, but I think everything you said is so true and, you know, it's, it does come down to maybe not literally, but, you know, taking your shoes off at the door, walking in, sitting down on the floor with these families and taking that apple juice or orange juice that they give you and drinking it and, you know, being a part of their culture or maybe not a part of their culture, but trying to, you know, immerse yourself with their culture and be accepting and so that you can get that rapport and get that relationship before you start anything else. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's so important for sure. Very true. Is there anywhere that we can continue to learn about more about cultural competency? Do you have any good resources or directions you can point us in for those of us that want more on the topic? Um, well, I think it's definitely a growing area in our field. So I, I hope to see more kind of social social media outlets, you know, pop up where there is more of that support there for, for us as practitioners. Um, but I do, you know, really encourage, um, you know, looking at Autism Speaks as a starting point to really kind of get those information uh articles or, or downloads to families in a way that they can better understand. But, you know, I'm really hoping that, you know, w- with our science really working and concentrating on this a little bit more, that we can have, you know, support groups or or um, organizations that can better be, that can better help or assist around that, you know, that cultural, that cultural diversity. Um, I think, I'm hoping that's where the field goes and I'm confident that's where the field is going because, you know, BCBAs are worldwide. There are, you know, BCBAs that translate. They are, there are BCBAs that are not English speaking. So um, I'm really hoping that with time, you know, those supports can be in place to to better strengthen the skill. Um, But for sure, I would definitely look at some of those, you know, those website outlets and, and hopefully, you know, we get more of those, um, you know, those outlets to better support us as practitioners, um, especially with cultural, you know, diversity and working with, you know, families that, that are not from the U.S. Yeah, it's definitely an area of need that I agree. We I hope we continue to to do better and and get better and grow and grow in the field. It's so important. Well, um, thank you for enlightening us so far with um it's so, it's so nice to hear from someone who's actually working in it, actually has that experience. And it sounds like you've been doing it for many years um, where some of us might just be catching up. So thank you for sharing that with us. And um, well, I also want to say thank you. I think this is, you know, really important. This is kind of our starting point, you know, one of many starting points that our field is having with, with better understanding how to have more compassionate and and more of that cultural acceptance of our families. Um, And, and I'm so thankful that, you know, you guys gave me the, the ability to share my experience working with Portuguese speaking families. It's been very near and dear to me um, for so many years. And I hope to, 
continue this in the future. But thank you so much for giving me the time to to really um, explain my experience. And, and hopefully this was helpful for, for BCBAs that are seeking this information as well for, for their families as well. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I, I hope many people learn from it. And I, I know we did. Thank you, thank so, you much, so much, Ashley. It was really great to talk to you. Of thank course. You. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com. And make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.